You're listening to the Heart and Hustle podcast. We are your hosts, Evie Rupp and Lindsay Roman. Now, if you, my friend, are ready to be wrapped up in the warmest, most loving hug of your life, and yet given a shove of encouragement and truth, just wow. Okay, wow. Just listen to today's show. Today, we have the incredible honor of talking to one of the most incredible women. Author, speaker, and podcast host, Mary Morantz, grew up in a single-wide trailer in rural West Virginia. The first of her immediate family to go to college, she went on to earn a law degree from the nation's top-ranked law school, Yale. After ditching six-figure salary law firm offers in London and New York, she started a business with her husband, Justin, and together they built a successful online education platform for creative entrepreneurs. She is also the host of the highly ranked and popular podcast, The Mary Morantz Show. And Mary also released her first book, Dirt, Growing Strong Roots in What Makes the Broken Beautiful, back in September. She lives in an 1880s fixer-upper by the sea in New Haven, Connecticut with her husband, Justin, and their two very fluffy golden retrievers, Goodspeed and Atticus. Okay, gosh, I have so many things to say about today's interview, but If you have ever felt like you don't belong somewhere because of the dirt in your past or where you grew up or that you have to hide parts of your story in order to fit in, this show is going to wreck you in all of the best ways. Today, we talk to Mary about her story growing up in the dirt of West Virginia, how our experiences as a child have such an impact on us as adults, struggling with imposter syndrome and encouragement and how to overcome it, and how to handle feeling like you're quote, betraying your past or upbringing by chasing, quote, more. I could say a billion things about today's interview and how insanely incredible it is, but I think you're just going to have to figure that out for yourself. Seriously, listen to this episode. You'll get wrecked. So let's go. You're listening to the Heart and Hustle podcast with Evie Rupp and Lindsay Roman, two photographers turned entrepreneurs and founders of the Heart University. If you're a creative entrepreneur or a motivated dreamer wanting to make the most of your life, this podcast is for you. Each week, Evie and Lindsay bring you actionable tools to uplevel your business and life. So if you're ready to step up to the plate and pursue your God-given potential, you're in the right place. You're ready to live your life and run your business to its fullest? Then buckle up, because here are your hosts, Evie and Lindsay. Mary, welcome to the Heart and Hustle podcast. We are beyond excited to have you. Oh my gosh, you guys, Lindsay and Evie, thank you so much for having me. I feel like, um, I don't, it's weird. Like, I don't think we've ever met, but I already feel like we're friends just from going back and forth. I know. Well, you're okay. You have a voice that literally makes it's like a warm cup of tea in a voice. I don't know if that sounds weird. (laughs) You know what? I've had so many of my friends say, you know, if this author thing does not work out, you could always make a living reading nursery rhymes. Uh, Oh, great. I'll just put people right to sleep. (laughs) No, that's like a compliment. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, okay. For anyone in the Heart and Hustle family that doesn't know you, tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today. We just want the whole juicy story. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, I always feel like um, there, there's a really good rule of thumb. I feel like and my husband reminds me of this often. He says, like, think of a match burning Mary, like keep it to that. Because I literally wrote a whole book about how <laughs> I got to this moment hanging out with you guys. And so, okay, maybe like, well, yeah. the whole entire episode will be that. So just yeah. like the introduction, maybe. <laughs> totally, totally. So the the, the kind of like 30,000 foot, you know, elevator pitch version is, I was born and raised in a trailer on the top of a mountain in rural West Virginia. And uh, my dad's a logger. My mom cleaned houses. My grandfather was a coal miner. Like we just come from a long line of, uh, you know, West Virginia stock like that. And fast forward, I am their only child. And the first in my family to go to college, I end up getting into Yale for law school, which is, you know, quite the jump in one generation. And so the book itself really gets into kind of like how, how does a, a generational leap like that happen? And then, you know, my life is like a lot of like fast forwards. It's sort of like that uh, movie click with Adam Sandler where it's like, mm, fast forward <laughs> through that part. Uh, three years of law school, I have two law firm offers in London and New York. And I've met my husband, Justin, who's a photographer. And we have to decide, do I want to spend a hundred hours a week trying to go from junior associate to associate to partner in a law firm and never see him? Or do we want to start building this photography business 
together side by side where we don't have any money or clue what we're doing, but we would at least get to bear witness to life together. We would get to spend time together. And so we made that leap in 2006, did 15 years of that. And then I officially retired to become a full-time author when I signed my book contract for five books. Oh, wow. That's a deal. Yeah. (laughs) Dang. Okay. Well, speaking of books, do you want to talk to us, Mary, a little bit about your recent book that came out last year, Dirt, and just what that means personally to you? Yeah. So um, if you like, if you're listening right now, you can either go to like thebookdirt.com or you can just, you know, Google the book dirt and you'll see the cover pop up. And the first interesting thing to know, I think, is that the trailer on the cover is the actual trailer I grew up in. And (gasps) if there are any photographers listening, this will make it even more interesting to you. Justin actually took that photo that's on the cover the first time I took him home to meet my family. Wait, what? I know, I know. And so there's a lot happening just in the cover. Um, And the book is called Dirt. And, you know, those little, all the little speckles and smudges you see in the title and around it are actually embossed on the cover. And then we have this, you know, growing strong roots and what makes the broken beautiful. And there's gold foil there and gold foil on my name. And so it's just a very like rich, layered, lots of meaning, lots of stuff happening in the cover itself. And I'll tell you what, you guys, like when that book, when we announced the title and did a cover reveal um, around like first, I think in May, but then it started really ramping up through August. We were running a lot of Facebook ads for the book and people just saw the trailer and they just saw this word dirt. Um, there were a lot of people, especially people from home. There were a ton of people who were supportive, like 99.9% supportive, but there was that other like 0.5% who were really suspicious about calling a book dirt, right? Was it going to be like, oh, I'm going to dish all the dirt or I'm going to sling the mud mm-hmm. at what it was like to grow up in that trailer, grow up in that hometown, you know, mm-hmm. am I going to like, tell all the juicy gossip, like what, like, what is a book called dirt going to be like? Um, but for me, you know, what, what this book really stands for is that it's sort of this anthem, this almost like a siren call. I want people to hear that these muddy parts of your story, you have spent years hiding. I didn't talk about growing up in a trailer in the photography world for years. And we would go and we would speak at these conferences and I'd stand on stages in my nice new J crew factory sweater, you know? (laughs) And the very first time we really brought that into the talk, you know, we'd had people come up after the talks before and say, Oh, that was nice. Thanks for sharing. The first time I shared about being the girl in the trailer, there was a line out the ballroom and down the hallway oh my God. in Vegas at WPPI to the point that like the hotel security had to come break it up after like two or three hours. Wow. Because we just had it wow. through the line of people coming up to say, I was the girl in the trailer. I was the one who grew up that way or grew up, you know, had this part of my story. I didn't think anybody could know or they wouldn't accept me. And so this book really becomes this kind of anthem for the muddiest parts of your story you're hiding away that you think you have to hide to fit into the room, to sit at these tables, to be that most put together woman in the room no one would ever know. Those things are actually your superpower. When you start leaning into the vulnerability, when you start leaning into the mud that you came from, that's what's going to make you interesting. And so it really is just kind of a journey of making peace with your past. Mm. Mary, I love this topic. And I, I even just like growing up in the photography industry, not growing up, but like being in the photography <laughs> industry for a few years, like I always looked at you guys and I knew who you were. And I think it's so interesting because like whenever I thought of Justin and Mary or just you guys in general, I would always think of like luxury, very like polished, classy. And I think there is that juxtaposition between like that image almost and dirt and like, like Mm -hmm. your past in the mud. And I think, but there's beauty in that. And I can guarantee like so many people relate to wanting to hide your past away or wanting to, to be like, Oh no, I'm successful. And I don't have anything like dirty in my past or any, any hidden things Mm -hmm. in the closet. And it's like, that's, I just love what you said about how like, that's your superpower Mm -hmm. and why you had that many people lining the, the ballroom because so many people relate to that. And I think so many people need to hear that because all of us have dirt in our past uh, in one asset or another, or one aspect or another. And I think so many people are afraid of sharing that. What what ironically makes them kind of relatable. 
Yeah, that's the thing. I think it's so interesting that you brought that up actually is I was literally just thinking about this about an hour ago. And I was thinking about that brand that we launched that you're speaking of. We we called it like our forever brand. We'd had this much more mm, playful, quirky. We drive a, a mini. We play Mario Kart Wii. We have a golden retriever, like, you know, teal blue, but like with like, I don't know, we were holding like a one-way sign and like I was wearing like knee socks. I don't know. It was very, <laughs> very quirky. And then we launched this brand in, in 2015 that we called our forever brand that was this very elevated, very... Burberry meets Vanity Fair meets mm-hmm. the Tiffany, you know, ads in the wintertime or what have you. And like that felt like grown up Justin and Mary. And that felt like very much where we were with our work and where we were with, um, you know, the evolution of our business that far in. But what was interesting is when I started going to conferences after that, people would come up to me and they would use, they started using this word that was like a knife to my heart. And they would say, intimidating. They would they say, oh my gosh, I didn't expect you to be so like down to earth on stage. I like looking at you online, I thought you were so intimidating. And like, mm. if you know my heart, that's like the last thing I ever yeah. mm-hmm. to feel because I know what it's like to feel like you don't belong with somebody or around somebody. Mm-hmm. And so the thing I was thinking about an hour ago is, you know, one of the biggest pieces of advice people give people about their brands when they're thinking of a brand for their business. And I have given this piece of advice is to think about brands you're drawn to But we also have to think about not just where we are in our comfort with brands, but where our most target client is. Mm. And the fact of the matter is there were people who were initially choosing not to come learn from us with our photography education, our lighting workshops, whatever it was, because they didn't want to feel dumb in front of the intimidating people. Now that, that's a real good reality check of like exactly what you're saying. Do I want to come in? not a hair out of place, the most polished, the most put together woman in the room, because I've convinced myself that is the bare minimum standard I have to hit to be welcome in most rooms, to be invited to most tables. But the irony of that is in doing that and becoming what we think is acceptable and will make us belong. It's actually this Heisman, this stiff arm to the very people we're trying to reach. Because we see it as, okay, whew, now I'm enough. You know, nothing is out of place. Mm-hmm. They see it as, how could I ever relate? How could I ever connect to somebody who's that, you know, perfect or wound up or trying to be that perfect? Like, I, like, there's a line in dirt where I say, it's like sweet buttercream frosting. We keep laying on layer after layer. But really what people are trying to get to is that sweet crumbly part inside because the buttercream is far too sweet to be real. Mm. I relate so much to that because I hate frosting and I love the inside of a cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like if you had a whole meal of fondant or however you say it, fondant, whatever. Yeah. Like you would feel ill afterwards. That's what it feels mm-hmm. like for people to spend time with this like pretend you. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting to be in the same room with somebody who is like performing the whole time. We, I've been around people like that. You've been around people like that and you leave tired for them. It's like, I don't even know how you make it through your days yeah. putting on that much of a show, you know? Yep. I think it also, you know, is, is not only damaging to the people that you're trying to talk to and you're trying to reach, but it's also damaging for us trying to keep up a facade of perfection that can either cause us. I think that the two things that I've noticed from trying to, you know, keep up that out of place is that either we begin to feel like a fraud and we feel like we don't fit in because we know we're not that perfect on the inside or on the flip side an opposite extreme is that we fall into pride and we think we are perfect and we're not teachable we're not humble and either one is detrimental to our selves, our hearts, our, our success, our ability to reach people. And I just, I've noticed in my own life and just observing other people's lives that that seems to be the two extremes. If you do try to keep up the facade of either you begin to feel like a failure and a fraud and you fall apart inside, or you begin to feel like you do have it all together and you fall apart because you're not actually teachable or correctable or, you know, relatable to other people. Yeah, totally. If it's okay with you, I actually uh, was able to pull up that part I was referencing. I really feel like people listening are going to relate to this because I know we've all walked through it. It says, we layer on more like a sweet buttercream frosting, don't we? We take the parts of us that are soft and delicate in danger of crumbling, and then we heap on more. We tell ourselves we have to do more and be more if we are ever going to be worthy, if the world is ever going to love us. 
and it's exhausting. And I just think we should all agree to stop doing it to ourselves and to each other. Because what if I told you that all along the soft, vulnerable, delicate, partially crumbling center that makes up the core of you, that's what people are really trying to get to anyway. That in this world where no one slows down long enough to really talk to each other anymore, more than anything, we just want to see the real you, the one that's hidden behind all those layers of what you think you should be, because the buttercream just gets in the way of that. And that's why most of us can really only take it in very small doses anyway. It's just far too sweet to be real. We go out into the world and we wear the armor of the well-adjusted, the sword and shield of the overachieved, the cape that covers all manner of our most secret identities. Brick by brick, we build this facade that we think is everything the world wants to see. But then when we step back to admire our work, we realize it is not a monument to how far we've come that we've built, but a wall that now stands between us and other people. These capes and masks we wear are not just a barrier that keeps everyone else out, They are also a prison of perfection that keeps us walled in and we're suffocating. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Well, that was was powerful. Your book is now top of my list for the next book that I will be reading. And also, have you uh, recorded you reading your book? Do you have it on like an audio book? Yes, I did get to read the audio book. Okay, go. God bless. I was literally about to ask that exact same question because I was like, that is a book that need you. we need to experience it audibly. Yeah. <laughs> from you. That's the biggest thing. From you. <laughs> um, yeah, we kind of made a joke. We were like, it's, pr- it's probably got to be me or like maybe Morgan Freeman, but like then it's pretty weird. <laughs> I was a little girl in West Virginia. You know? I feel yeah. like as much as Morgan Freeman rocks, it has yeah. to be. It's yeah. so personable. But okay, speaking of the book and just in it, you write about how your experiences or how the experiences we all have in our developing years have so much impact on who we are as people and our adults, adult, I can't, adult selves growing up. So my question is, could you share with us some childhood experiences that have shaped you into who you, who, what, what am I trying to say? Into what has shaped you as you are as, as an adult? That was a really <laughs> awful delivery. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is I had Ian Morgan Cron who wrote The Road Back to You, um, which is about the Enneagram. And I don't, mm-hmm. are, have you guys taken the Enneagram? Do you know what your numbers are? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm a I'm, three. Oh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm a seven. Got it. So that's, uh, Achiever and likes a lot of fun. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> What's the word for seven? I'm like, likes a lot of fun. Uh, Free spirit, forget. maybe? I don't know. Okay. I forget. The entertainer? Oh, yeah. yeah no, yeah. the entertainer is a, is a three. Oh, interesting. Mm. I don't know. We'll continue. <laughs> okay. I will figure this out. Okay. So, so what's interesting about the way that Ian Morgan Cron teaches the Enneagram that was different than anything I had heard up until that point, I'll say, is that he argues, and, and this is, he's done a lot of deep dive into the Enneagram. He says, the the personality types, the numbers that we get are not who we were hardwired, created to be. It's not like this is the natural manifestation of how God created me or what have you. Um, the The numbers we get are the masks we put on in childhood because something, when we started to become aware of our external world, because you start off only really being aware as a child of your internal world. When we start to see the external world, something told us, this is who you have to be in order to be worthy of love. And so mine was, oh, wow. Like I see how people in my family are reacting to me when I get straight A's. When I, you know, stand up in front of the church and recite, "Twas the night before Christmas, start to finish 56 lines at four years old, whatever. Um, Somebody else who says over their kid, oh, you're just, you're such a, you're such a fun kid. You just love fun. You're just so easy. Like my husband is a, Justin is a nine. He's the peacemaker. So probably at some point he was praised for being such an easy kid, for being so easygoing. And so we start to learn, okay, that's who I have to be for the rest of my mm-hmm. life in order to be worthy of love. And so I thought that was very powerful in particular because it comes back to your question of these things that happened to us in childhood, whether you had a more extreme childhood, like trailer to Yale Law, or like my husband, Justin, grew up in a really nice suburb in New Jersey and his parents are happily married. All of us have experiences as children where we start to see the world and go, that's how I work my way into worth. That's how I you know, put on this cape and this mask and become lovable. And so that can be very extreme. Like, you know, for me in particular, I had my mom left when I was nine. And so I started 
to believe without ever understanding it that in order to be somebody who's worthy of having the people you love stay, you had to go out and do these incredible things with your life Mm. or at the very least go out and do incredible things with your life. So they're sad they weren't there. There's a whole Mm. section I get into in Dirt where it talks about, you know, from a distance, it can feel like you're winning this daisy in the middle of scorched earth. This hope springs eternal in the middle of this revenge wasteland that grew it. But I start to see as you get closer, the petals are wilting, you know, amidst this scorched heat that it's trying to thrive in. And it's just really not a way to build. It's not the fertile ground to build from if you want to build a beautiful life, right? So that's that would be one of mine. My mom left when I was little. And so everything I set out to do was to prove her wrong. Because really, the biggest fear that I had was what if she was right, that I wasn't somebody you should stay for. That was the real fear. Everything in my life was about defeating that fear, providing proof to the contrary. Well, look, I did this and I did that. So I must be a person worth staying for Mm. rather than no, just be in virtue of being a daughter. You're worth staying for Right. Mm. So I would say to like, think about it kind of, it's, it's almost kind of like helpful to think about it in reverse. Like what is something that you do now? What is an Enneagram type that you have? What is a way where you feel like the world is loving you, whether that's saying you're so easy to get along with, or you always have the most perfect X, Y, Z, or you're so much fun, or you achieve good things. And then try to trace that back to the first time you can remember getting that message when you were little. Wow. Oh, that's so good. I like think I'm a three, which is the achiever, like mm-hmm. the performer, the person mm-hmm. that wants to achieve a lot. And I think back to growing up in a very small town in Kansas. Mm. It, I always had that mindset of, oh, I have to escape this small town. Like I always wanted to go to Paris and see like far sights and live big wild dreams. And I grew up wanting to be an actress. And I think a part of that was wanting to be seen mm. when I was born in like a town that was like a flyover state. Well, the yeah. the state was flyover, but like the town <laughs> was just like a tiny town And it it got to the point where like, even in college, when I went away to college, I wanted to go to LA or New York and couldn't afford it. So I went to KU, which is still in Kansas. And that was just still great. But I had this mindset of like, if any of like the people that I grew up with in high school stayed in that small town, I looked down upon them because I'm like, oh, you didn't make it, which Mm. is so condescending and so bad of me to think. (laughs) But it comes from just what you said, like growing up, I wanted to achieve. I wanted my life to mean something, especially in like I didn't, my parents weren't like super well known and like super successful in careers. And I think I saw that and I'm like, oh, I want to achieve that for myself. Yeah. Um, and I okay. think that's so intriguing of just, just like, wait for this. Just oh, wait okay. for this. Okay. I'm ready for this then. I'm ready. <laughs> in that episode, I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm like, oh, you have to no, do this. Cut me off. <laughs> um, in this, in that same episode with Ian Morgan Crumb, um, you know, we're recording, we're, we're actually doing video recording. So I'm looking him in the face and he's going on talking about the masks we wear. And then he says this thing to me that I feel like, was that, uh, Lindsay who said that? Yes, that? yes. Yeah. Lindsay, you're especially going to relate to this. He said, I feel like our lives are divided into two parts. And the whole first half of our life is like the parable of the talents where we're trying to go out into the world and find a way to make a profit with these gifts we've been given. And the whole second part of our life is like the parable of the prodigal son where we're just trying to find our way back home. Mm -hmm. And I started ugly crying right as soon as he said it in the middle of this episode, we had to pause. I had to go get paper towels from the kitchen um, and pull myself together because it just hit me so strong. Of, I know that feeling of like, I need to be the one who left. I need to be the one who got out. I needed to mm-hmm. be the one who went and did big things. And then this whole journey of dirt is about not that I like end up back in West Virginia or back in the trailer, but it's about going back to the beginning and understanding home through adult eyes and like mm-hmm. this understanding that they were always doing the best that they could. And so the thing that comes up for me, I don't even know if you've like shared this publicly, but like how, like how everything you said and you shared, how is that feeling in light of making your way back to Kansas? I literally, as you're talking about this, I'm like, this is such an ironically timed interview because yeah. we're literally, when we bought the house in Kansas, cause we lived in Hawaii. Like I, I did it. I got out. I achieved. I feel like this is a therapy session, Mary. <laughs> like, like I got out. I achieved it. I lived in one of the most highest vacation destinations ever. And yeah. when we bought our house in Kansas, I literally was like, 
what are we doing? <laughs> like, I was like, what? Because I, all I ever wanted to do was to get out of Kansas. And now it's like this, it's this weird calming of like, I feel such peace going back. And I don't know if we'll be there forever. We might not. And we might, who knows? I don't know. But it, it just, it's this weird peace, especially when growing up, all I ever wanted to do is like travel the world and get out. And it's just so ironic that I'm like, we're intentionally choosing to go back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking that through with me. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for the free therapy session. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Well, Mary, why don't we then talking about just kind of like that desire to fit in, that desire to be somewhere where we do feel like we belong or, you know, just the desire to achieve. You talk about feeling like you dealt with imposter syndrome at Yale Law and mm -hmm. feeling like you didn't belong there, that maybe you were there and you got in by mistake. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about imposter syndrome and that story for you? And did that feeling ever go away and all mm -hmm. of the above? <laughs> yeah. You know, what's interesting is, um, so, so for everybody who's listening and you are not in the law school world and would have no way of knowing this, Yale is the number one law school in the country. If you've seen, you know, legally blonde, you might be tempted to think that it's Harvard. <laughs> what is hard? Um, but if you, if you rewatch the movie, there's actually a part where they talk about Warner's older, more successful brother getting into Yale. And that's a reference to, um, Yale being number one. That's and so funny. it is, it is kind of the equivalent of higher education of getting, you know, a golden ticket in Willy Wonka's chocolate bar because thousands and thousands of people apply and they only take about, when I was there, I think they took about 190 people for it was my entire class. Wow. And so, um, you know, what's really, what's interesting is that because it is such a sought after coveted spot and because everybody who's applying at that level is incredibly qualified, you know, it starts to become the admissions people are starting to look for people who bring something different to the table in terms of perspective or background or story. And so it's to the point where enough people in every class sit in that auditorium on the first day of orientation fully believing that it's a mistake and it's going to get corrected in any second and like <laughs> their name is going to get called and they're going to be ushered out the side door, then they actually address it. They actually address it in orientation. They're like, we know you're sitting there thinking this is a mistake that, you know, you don't belong here, that you're not good enough. Um, everybody else here is so much more qualified and it's not like you were chosen on purpose for a purpose. And I remember, you know, sitting there listening to that and, and being like, yeah, everybody but me, <laughs> you know, it's still going to be me that they, <laughs> they call my name. And there's this part in dirt that's really fun. So the auditorium at Yale, they have stained glass windows everywhere. And there's a part where I talk about the first time I went, we weren't even able to go inside because it was locked down with security still. Um, a bomb had gone off a few months before during final exams, it was this whole thing. Um, and so security was still really tight. And so I could only like press my face against the stained glass and look in. Well, at orientation, you're sitting in this auditorium and all of those stained glass windows are the different seals of the states, you know, from the state flags. Mm -hmm. And so where I was sitting, I was like, there's Connecticut, there's Massachusetts, there's Rhode Island. I see California. I see South Carolina. I see Georgia. I could not see West Virginia in that room. And it was, you know, metaphorical as well. Like I could not see myself fitting in there. And, you know, I think um, my biggest regret looking back on law school, I, I would not want to repeat it. It's a very intense experience. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to go back for the like studying and all that stuff aspect. But if I could like do like a movie montage, fast forward, reliving <laughs> of law school, if I would go back and I would not hold all of my classmates at arm's length because I went in and this is a word for somebody listening. I went into that room expecting to be rejected. So I rejected them first. Wow. And that's a really dangerous way. You can end up going through a lot of your life like that if you don't catch that and shut that down pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. You assume you don't belong with them. So you make sure that you give them reasons right? To kind of like keep you at a distance, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's you judging them or you not liking them because you perceive things about where they are, or you just being kind of a sandpaper person because you want to be rough around the edges. So when they reject you, it doesn't hurt as bad. Well, I kind of went through, I wasn't, I don't feel like I was mean to anybody, but I was definitely like too cool for school and like, you know, oh gosh, like you guys are taking this so seriously. Like, I'm just going to sit over here with like, a few people and talk about pop culture because you guys are just like going to go study or whatever. Um, yeah. it, was, it was not a good 
attitude. And the, the truth of the matter is that I went to school with some really awesome people who are doing incredible things in the world and they're, they're helping people and they're fighting for rights and they're just, they've grown up. We've all grown up to be these people who just are doing everything we can to leave the world a little bit better. And I think if I could have gone back and spent more time with them, just enjoying them, I would. That reminds me kind of of the buttercream met, like metaphor that you mm. said earlier of yeah. like almost like we do that, right? We push people away out of fear that they'll see who we really are and that they won't accept us or love us. And I feel like you keeping them at arm's length, like that's a version yeah. of, of how we as human beings like add another layer to the buttercream instead of letting people see who we really are. Yeah. Yeah. Why am I thinking of like prickly pear or something? <laughs> you become like a cactus, you know, and like, mm-hmm. yes, it's a really sweet drink, but instead you just hurt people. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Well, also in Dirt, you walk readers through several relationships that you have had that have been pivotal in your life. And I'd love if you could sum up how these relationships have made you the person that you are today. Mm, I mean, that that is definitely a big question. Uh, one of the big ones that jumps out is um, there's a very cool parallel telling of stories throughout Dirt between my story and my dad's story. So the, the book itself is divided into two parts. I think that's important for people to know. There's the girl in the trailer and then there's the girl after the trailer. And a lot of the wounds that get opened up in part one sort of get stitched back together in part two in these sort of full circle moments of coming back and understanding things from a different perspective. And so my dad um, was 12 years old when he went to work in the woods. He grew up in my grandma Goldie's house. Our trailer was hauled in on an 18-wheeler and dropped on the back part of her yard, the back part of her property. So he and I grew up on the same plot of land. You know, I mean, my grandma's house was like 50 paces away. It wasn't even like acres and acres. It was like right there. We grew up going in the same grade school, which had like five rooms and every two grades had to be combined into one room to make it work. And we ended up going to the same Sunday school. And so we, in every way, same mountain, same yard, same Sunday school, same grade school, all of the things, we were setting out on this very same parallel trajectory. Except he came in and said, I was never really given the choice to go to college. I was never really given the choice. You know, the 1950s, 1960s in Richwood, West Virginia, the boys became coal miners or loggers. And there's this really powerful scene where he is there when his uncle gets trapped in a mine. And it was like to him getting to work outside as a logger and see blue sky was like his version of getting out. But then for me, he really, truly wanted me to have the opportunity to go to school if I wanted to. And so he starts bringing home workbooks when I'm four years old so that I can get ready for kindergarten because nobody had ever prepared him for school. And he felt really dumb when he went to kindergarten. He got laughed at the first few days. And that was like all he needed to put on that mask that said, mm. so I'm not a bright person. Um, and he, he wears that to this day, even though he's one of the smartest people you'll ever talk to. And so he started started putting me in these workbooks and... The idea is that you would get the workbook for the grade that they were about to go into, that your child was about to start. But he was not big on like the expectations. <laughs> we started in kindergarten and then we moved to first grade and second grade. And we just kept, once I finished a workbook, he would just go by the next level up. So when I started kindergarten, all of 1985, I was at a sixth grade reading and a fifth grade math level. Wow. <laughs> Photographers, listen up. Do you struggle with editing in Lightroom? Are you confused as heck about organizing catalogs, backing up your images, calling takes you actual ages, and editing as a whole just leaves you feeling discouraged and frustrated and maybe bored too? If that is you, consider us Santa on Christmas morning because we have a completely free Lightroom challenge for you that walks you through everything we just mentioned, including a bunch of tricks and hacks that make editing in Lightroom a million times easier and faster. The challenge includes five videos, roughly 30 to 50 minutes each of Evie and I tackling some of the trickiest topics on editing and teaching you exactly how we use Lightroom to edit drool-worthy photos. We cover our favorite tools within Lightroom that will change your editing game, and we teach you how we import 
Cole, upload, backup, and catalog our photos in a way that is efficient, fast, and reliable. You don't want to miss this challenge, my friend. And if your editing needs a refresh and you just want to know how we edit our photos, this is the place to be. Sign up and join the challenge at theheartuniversity.com forward slash challenge. One more time, that's theheartuniversity.com forward slash challenge. And we can't wait to see you there. Do you feel like every time you send an email to an inquiring client, there's crickets? You're never getting clients to respond back to you and you're just sitting there like, what the heck am I doing wrong? Well, my friend, we're about to solve your problem full free. Did you know that the most important part of the very first email you send an inquiry is your pricing guide? (gasps) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Yes, and your pricing guide should be an avalanche of professional excellence, details, problem solving, and information for your ideal client. They should walk away from that pricing guide asking, where the heck has this person been my whole life? Now, if your pricing guide isn't leaving your clients in awe, then you need to change it. Now, we are about to help you do just that with our free guide, Seven Essentials to Include in Your Pricing Guide. If you are ready to level up and prove your value to your clients, you need this. Head to theheartuniversity.com forward slash guide dash freebie to snag it theheartuniversity.com forward slash guide dash freebie. Oh, that is so, so good. I love hearing just kind of the, I don't even know, the the background of making us think about, okay, I've taken on this identity of, you know, I'm ahead of the curve or I'm not very smart or whatnot. And it puts us into these boxes that can just, control our lives almost and make Mm. us prisoners to this identity that we've grabbed hold of because it worked for us in the past or it kept us safe in the past. But in reality, it's actually hurting us and controlling us in a way that I think we're just unaware of. Like we're blind to that almost cage that we're locking ourselves in. Do you feel like that's kind of an accurate picture of that? Well, it's so interesting because I am a huge believer that, you know, words either have the power to speak life mm-hmm. or speak death. Um, but we we also have to kind of think about what kind of life we're speaking, kind of like bringing in the Enneagram and the masks we might be convincing a child to wear. So there's one of my favorite kind of like memes that floats around on Facebook ever so often is like, shout out to all the gifted kids in grade school who are now suffering from like anxiety, mm-hmm. questioning your purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, did you achieve all of your potential? And also like really good at crossword puzzles or whatever, <laughs> like check all that apply. And it makes me laugh because, um, you know, there was actually a study. My friend Jess Ekstrom was telling me about it when she came on the show and she was saying there were two groups of students. They told one group, they gave them both the same assignment. They told one group, you are, you have been chosen because you are gifted. You're very, very, you know, intelligent. You're advanced. You're ahead of everybody else. You're going to solve this problem because you're so gifted. And then they told the other group when they solved the problems, you solved that problem because you're such a hard mm-hmm. worker. You stuck it, you didn't give up, you faced adversity and pressed in, you like were creative in your thinking and, and you problem solved your way around it. When those two groups were given the second, slightly more difficult problem, the gifted kids struggled. They really felt the weight of maybe that's not mm-hmm. true of me after all, or maybe mm-hmm. I don't know how to achieve this potential that's in me, or oh my gosh, like how am I ever going to, you know, live up to all these expectations? The other group that was praised for being hard workers mm-hmm. thrived because they were they were told you got here through your efforts and through mm-hmm. not giving up. Do I think there's danger in both of those things? Like, you know, you're you're the person who just never gives up. You're the person who just picks yourself up again and again and again. So like you can never stay down basically becomes the mm-hmm. extreme, right? So I think there's danger in all of them, but there is something to be said when we're speaking to ourselves if you have kids, when you're speaking to your kids that says, I believe that you are gifted, but even if it doesn't work out, you're still loved. I believe that you are a hard worker, but even if you go through a whole season where you just want to rest, you are loved. Like these things can be true of you. And even if you don't feel like that on that day, you are no more or less worthy of love. So you have to start from that place of you're already loved. You're already worthy. The, you know, the ultimate has already been I mean, I don't, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I, my faith is very important to me. So I can get yeah. really, really deep here, but like the ultimate sacrifice has already been paid. Like whatever yeah. else comes, the worth and the love. Mm. Yeah. We're on the same page Amen. with the faith. So <laughs> you're, you're 
preaching to the choir here. Um, but I think that's so true as the just a testament of the power of words over ourselves and over other people. And mm-hmm. I think especially people forget about themselves, like the words that you speak to yourself. Um, yeah. But that also is just a really good reminder, especially like as a parent or just two parents listening, like the words that you speak over your children matter. Like yeah. it, it's such a formula. That's not the word I'm trying to say. Uh, what am I trying to say? A formulaic mm-hmm. form, something like, maybe that's the word I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Like a formulaic part of growing up that mm-hmm. you attach your identity to is like the words that are spoken over you. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting, kind of going back to our conversation from a little while ago about you guys seeing us as Justin and Mary, the brand, and then like that trailer being like a very jarring, you know, mm-hmm. juxtaposition between those two things is I'm currently in the process of writing my second book. And I say like, if dirt is sort of a love letter to the girl in the trailer, this book becomes kind of a love letter to the girl after the trailer, that girl who does feel like she always has to be the most put together woman in the room. And the two books, when you see them side by side, I think are going to be very interesting. I can't reveal too much, of course, because it's not, it doesn't come out till next April. Um, and we literally, literally just like started having the cover meetings. Um, but when you see them, if it ends up looking like, I think it's going to look like it's going to be this very like, book two kind of looks like that it's put on its most put together woman Mm. in the room look. And I think it's kind of surprising when people start getting in the pages of it and it's like, no, you actually don't have to be this polished to matter. Mary, I have a question. How did you know you wanted to, to write? Like, how did you go from photographer to writer? Yeah. You know, what's so interesting is that to most of the world, that is, this is going to feel really weird to say out loud, but it's something like, it's something along the lines of like, photographer was never really my identity or it was never really like, like it kind of got there for a while, but like I've known I've wanted to write since Mm -hmm. I was five. And so I, I also knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur since I was little, like these things came out and I was very interested in photography, but I always saw photography as like this thing that Justin and I were going to go do for a while before I got onto the real work I was called to do, you know, big, big quotes around real work um, that I always felt called to, which was writing. So I, I, I'm not being um, exact, you know, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say five years old, I can literally remember driving past uh, where I grew up in West Virginia, not too far from there is the birthplace of Pearl Buck, who is the Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winning author of The Good Earth. And so there was a little plaque outside her little farm homestead that said, birthplace of Pearl Buck, author of The Good Earth. And I can remember distinctly being five and feeling like, cause I was already the kid who was like, when I was playing in the yard, I was thinking in narrative. She walks through the yard yeah. and <laughs> her toy, you know, whatever. Um, so I just distinctly remember God saying to me, you are going to be a writer. I don't think I knew the word author yet. And you're going to write stories that bring honor to West oh. Virginia, like Pearl Buck did. And that's so amazing. I mean, that it feels like that's been the path all along, but it just felt like probably a mix of me not feeling quote unquote there yet, wherever there is going back to our conversation about imposter syndrome, but also a very good example of God's time being timing being perfect. Because I think if I had tried to write this book any sooner, like if I'd tried to write it after law school or something like that, it would have ended up being a much more mm-hmm. bitter, angry version of the story. Like God knew that I needed time for wisdom and a softening of my heart to settle in and for grace to kind of take roots and, mm-hmm. and and for me to really write words from a place of grace instead of um there's grace for me but for nobody else you know and so um it's it's sort of like when i look at it and there's there's so much to be said for faith makes sense in hindsight and and, and the breadcrumbs that god was dropping all of, i feel like god is like a big oh, jokester yeah. if we're really just leaning into the faith conversation <laughs> where he's just having a blast being like I'm just going to drop this right here and it's not going to make sense for 12 years, but when it does, we're going to laugh about it a lot. You know? yep. Yep. I gave a talk even like in, two, in 2015 that was titled um, Digging in the Dirt. And I had no idea at the time I was going to name a book that, you know, just little things like that uh, all along the line. But I do feel like one of the very first things I say in Dirt is I feel like he spoke to me in the yard at a young age and he said, one day the story is going to make sense. I'm going to put words to it and then you'll see your story won't mm. be wasted. That makes me want to cry. That's so beautiful. Uh, Okay. Well, I feel you felt that from a young age, Mary, of like wanting to bring honor to West Virginia. But I think 
there's a part in your book or building something more can sometimes almost feel like a betrayal to the people who raised you. And did mm-hmm. you struggle with that when writing the book or, you know, becoming more or, you know, kind of your journey? Did you ever feel that? And how did you kind of handle or balance that? Oh boy. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. Um, you know, here's the thing. I think there can be betrayals on, on multiple levels. Um, the first is just sort of, and there's probably people who are listening right now who are like, I have felt called to be a writer, but I don't know how I would ever tell my story because telling my story would involve telling someone else's story as well. And I really struggled with that when trying to put these words on a page. So just for anybody who's listening and they're interested in this part, the first draft of Dirt I turned in December 2nd, 2019. Um, turned it in on December 2nd, 24 hours passed, hadn't even heard back from my editor. And I just knew in my gut that was not the book that I wanted this, you know, on the shelves. I didn't want this book to stand for that. And so by December 3rd, I was like, I want to completely gut it and start over. And so um, my editor got me the words back on December 17th. And I had from December 17th to February 17th. That was our hard handoff deadline to copy editing. I gut completely like just like gutted 50,000 words and rewrote 50,000 words. It ended up being 70,000 words total um, in two months. Wow. And so, um, you know, the first part of that is like, allow yourself to just get the words on the page and, and, and say what you would say if nobody was going to read the words, just get it out. Like, let that be, let that draft be for you. Right. Because it might be the very first time you're even saying out loud, these things happened and then give yourself a little bit of time, maybe more than 24 hours and say, now, what does this story look like from their perspective? What does this story look like through God's eyes? Right. There's a really great writing adage that says versions of your story should go through true, truer and truest. True is how you remember things to be. There's, there's value there. It's, it's not that it's wrong or false. It's, it's how you saw it. Truer is when you start to understand how it looked from other people's perspective, kind of like a prism that you're holding out, you know, turning, you've only looked at one side, one facet of the story. You're turning it from side to side to see where the light gets in, see it from the other side. And then the truest is what God says about your story in light of all that. And so that's the first thing I would say is it can feel like a betrayal even to say out loud these things happen. There can be kind of a circling of the wagons. When people hear you're going to talk about how things were, they can be mad at you before they've ever Mm -hmm. read a word. There might be some people who walk away from you because you did it. But I will say this, that the people who really matter, my mom and my dad in particular, the biggest thing I prayed over this book and hoped for this book is, you know, so many of these stories have been told humble beginnings to the Ivy League or what have you, and they end up in estrangement. Can a story like this be told and the family actually end up healed and closer together because of it? And I'm here to tell you that between draft one and draft two, through conversations I had with them, we are all closer mm. than we've ever been. That's so, amazing. That's the first thing I would say is that the the when it comes to the people who matter, when it comes to telling a story that matters, when it comes to being obedient to the story God is asking you to tell, he will help you figure out what's in and what's out and what that story looks like through the lens of grace. You can still talk about hard things. You can still tell the truth about things that you need to tell the truth about, but people can tell when it's coming from a place of grace and not a place mm-hmm. of revenge. Um, and then just on the, on the broader, you know, topic, I guess, or broader picture of betrayal. Um, I talk about in dirt, there was like a second cousin I once heard talking about somebody else. It wasn't even about me, but she said she's acting higher than her raising, which implied that there was some ceiling, um, you know, and and Kansas may have had a version of this as well. Some ceiling (laughs) that you're not supposed to break through, that you're not supposed to want more of, um, or you're acting, you know, uppity or you're acting, um, too good for where you came from or you're, you know, this idea of, can you leave a place without saying there was something wrong with it? Can you ask for more without saying there was always never enough? And uh, that's a little hard because some of those people are not going to change their minds. And you're just going to have to say, I know, I know I was being obedient to what I was asked to write about and and I'm being obedient to the life I'm be- being asked to lead. And if you have a problem with that, take yeah. it up with God, you know, uh, there's a certain aspect of that. So it can feel like a betrayal to tell your story. It can feel like a betrayal to leave a place, but only you get to say what's happening between you and the place. If you still love that place, if you still call it home, then that's between you and the place. If you still love those people, 
and you've done right by them, that's between you and the people. And everybody else's opinion is going to have to fall away. Ugh. Well, I'm not prepared to cry today, but clearly I need need a group. Um, (laughs) Mary, I just had this question. It's not something necessarily that was prepared to ask, but I just feel like it keeps popping up in my head. So in your, your journey and your process from, you know, coming from the dirt of West Virginia and, and the trailer home and, and then stepping up into Yale or whatnot, how did you handle not becoming either prideful or arrogant of your success or maybe did you or yeah. And not becoming bitter of, you know, the, the roots that you had in the upbringing and not looking down on it, I guess. Was that ever something that you kind of dealt with or struggled with? Oh man. Um, I've struggled with both of those things. And I think, I think like there is this, um, there's this process that we're going through where we're becoming a new thing. And this goes back to this section talking about betrayal. So in Dirt. I feel like most of my sentences started with in dirt, but I feel like I've always, I've already like thought of the best words mm-hmm. for like these, these questions. There's this part where it's talking about, um, you know, there's a saying that's like, just when the caterpillar thought her life was ending, that's when she became a butterfly. <laughs> and like, that's supposed to be so inspirational. But every time I hear somebody say that, all I can think is like, well, I bet it hurts the caterpillar. You know, like this growing wings out of your own back, this clawing and scratching its skin that doesn't fit anymore, this literal stabbing of your own back to fulfill your own propensity to fly. And it kind of conjured up scenes out of X-Men for like what it looked like when that guy turned into a bird, right? And all the people who were well-meaning and they said, no, like cover that up, like hide what you're becoming. And I gave this whole powerful talk on it from the stage about like clawing and scratching and like, you know, these things breaking free. And then afterwards, the sound guy who ironically was named Mike (laughs) um, came up to me and he said, you know, actually, you know, you got to love that word. Actually, actually, um, caterpillars don't grow wings out of their back at all. That's not how it happens. And I was like, well, there goes my analogy. But it's even better. He said. If you cut open a chrysalis and look inside, what has actually happened is that the caterpillar has to disintegrate entirely, mm. like it's caterpillar soup. It has to be this complete death of self before it can become a new thing. And so, yeah, it is painful and it's messy. And a lot of that happens hidden away from the world. And when you come out as this new thing, there are a lot of studies that show um, that the butterfly, which is now a brand new thing, will kind of like, you know, stay in some of the similar areas or they'll keep some of the original coloring. So even though they've become an entirely new thing, they are somehow both both of those versions of themselves mm-hmm. at once. And it is painful and it is hard and it is messy. And that's kind of where I get into transformation hurts. Transformation hurts. It hurts you. It hurts the people around you. But that doesn't mean you're not fulfilling the call over your life to become this new thing. Mm. Wow. That is so good. Oh my gosh. Mary, I, I'm i just thinking of any listener out there that is potentially like in like the trailer park. Not physically. I mean, maybe physically, but like maybe they're in a season or just point of their life where they are wishing for more and they're scared of the unknown. They're scared of what could happen next, of the potential of what they want to do. What advice would you give to that woman? So I want to, I want to like ask a question about the question. Is this like, how do you lean, like feel the fear, like feel the fear and move forward anyway? Is this, how do you do it when it still feels like a betrayal? Like um, when you're thinking about that person in particular, who's feeling a pain point, what is it that's keeping them stuck? I'm thinking like they're afraid of that betrayal. At least that's the way I was thinking of it, of a, like they're afraid of flying because they feel like they don't deserve more or they're, they're afraid of betraying people. That's where my mind was going, but I, I'm open to your thoughts as well. Well, you know what I think is so powerful about that question is it's a que- it's something that every single one of us, myself included, should really spend some time digging into mm-hmm. because we, I mean, I, I can tell you right now that I have like money mindsets where I feel like 
it's been ingrained into me so long that if you didn't work for it, you probably don't deserve it. Yeah. And I even talk about, you know, that's, I sort of have that same kind of, when I'm really honest, I have that same kind of thinking about mm. grace because it's not something I ever worked for or something I could have ever possibly earned. Maybe I'm not worthy of that gift. Like even just receiving it, like, of course, there's nothing I could do to ever like, you know, if you're talking about balancing the scales, nothing I could do here that's going to balance what the the sacrifice that's already been made. But it's almost like I would turn away from success or I would turn away from grace or I would turn away from God because it felt like I don't want you to be disappointed that your sacrifice was for me. I don't want to get too far ahead where it feels like these things I have came easy. They started coming easy at some point or you know, momentum took over and it wasn't from my hands. And you had a question earlier that this kind of full circles back to about like, is it pride? Is it, is it bitterness? And one of the things that really started to help me not have any pride about any of these things that have happened in my life and to see them as something I can be okay accepting is this idea of when you honor the gift, you honor the giver. So because Yale Law is the, you know, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory golden ticket of education, there's not a doubt in my mind that something bigger had to be at play in order for me to get the green lights to get one of those tickets, right? Like there had to be a plan over my life. I could work really, really hard and get really good grades and really good LSAT scores and be competitive at this tier of mm -hmm. law school. But to actually end up in the number one, that becomes this gap that I can't account for. Mm -hmm. I could go on match.com and say, well, I'm going to give this a try in 2004 when it's brand new and you don't know if you're meeting a love of your life or serial <laughs> killer, but I'll show up. But there's a gap between I show up and my future husband's sitting in the coffee shop, which he was 17 wow. years ago, almost. Right. And then there's like this gap between I want to buy my first house and actually there's going to be this really, I said God was a joker. I grew up hating the smell of mildew because our trailer smelled like mildew. Fast forward a bunch of years, we're able to buy our first house as our dream house on the water in Connecticut because it was in foreclosure, a pipe burst, there was a flood and it smelled like, oh my God. <laughs> right? Like, this is what I mean. There are these gaps in my life that I know I can't take credit for. And so there are things like I have a certain ability with words. I don't take any more credit for that than I do that my eyes are mm -hmm. the color that they are. You know, it was a gift. And when I honor that gift, I honor the giver. Mm. Mm. Oh, you leave us speechless every single time you talk. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I don't have anything to say that would follow that. I'm just out. I'm done. Yeah. I'm, bye. Like, I, <laughs> you're so eloquent, Mary. Okay, sorry. I, I just wanted to tag on to that because I love what you just said. And I think something that just towards the end of what you were saying kind of stuck with me of, you know, the same way you don't take credit for your ability with words, the way you do with your eye color. It's also, you have to acknowledge that you were given that eye color and like use your eyes and the same way, you know, acknowledge mm -hmm. I was given this gift with words and I have to use that gift. Like we can't mm -hmm. just, yeah. you know, falsely hu hum like humble ourselves and pretend that we don't have these gifts or that it's not there or pretend to ignore them. We have to embrace them and run with them. And that's just what like popped into my head when you're finishing that sentence. I was yeah. like, it's just as much about, you know, acknowledging it as it is in recognizing that we probably didn't do anything to deserve it. Yeah. A thousand percent. There's so many people listening right now who are sitting on their gifts, spending more of their time thinking about how they're not worthy of the things they want to go do instead of thinking about all the people who are not being served and helped while they're sitting mm. on that gift. And we're ready. Amen. Amen. <laughs> that is, I've said that before uh, and I, that literally so good. Like people need to understand that their gifts that God created them with are going to bless people if they get over the fear of what people would think of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oof. Mm -hmm. Mary, you <laughs> have been a gift to this show. <laughs> Can you please tell everyone where they, after they just listen to this episode, where they can find you, where they can buy your book, where they can just see what you're doing and check you out and all the things. 
Yeah, definitely. So the central hub is marymarantz.com, M-A-R-A-N-T-Z.com. And from there, you can click over to, you can see the book page, which is the direct link is thebookdirt.com. So T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com. There's the podcast is the Mary Morant show.com. And then it is at Mary Morant's on all the socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, but I don't really go on there too much. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And send me a DM. If you listen to the episode and you loved it, I want to hear from uh, you. So. Mary, you are yeah. yes. beyond incredible. I feel so, I, the word I'm thinking is like, I feel like I was just wrapped in a big, massive hug today, but then also like, mm-hmm. like kind of pushed out and, and like, okay, now go do your, like, go for it. Like given permission, yeah. it's like a mix of, of empowerment and just love today. So thank you for just sharing so much of your story and your heart. And I am so, so excited to read your book. Yes. Oh, thank you. You have to let me know what you think when you read it. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you, Mary. Thank you.